you for joining us today to speak to a firm. Before we get started with Max and Michael, I have an important disclosure to read. For important disclosures, please see morganstanley.com slash research disclosures. And with that, thank you very much for joining us. I'm James Fawcett, the U.S. Head of Payments and FinTech Services Research here at Morgan Stanley. Very pleased to be joining us this afternoon is Max Lubkin, CEO and founder of, of a firm, and Michael Linford, also of a firm. I'm sure that most of you are, are very well aware of a firm. As we get started, obviously, as is usual, I have prepared questions, um, but if you're following along via webcast, uh, feel free to, to submit those. We'll try to get to those as we can or incorporate them as, as we go through our conversation today. So without really any further ado, Max, why don't we start with you? For those maybe that are less familiar familiar with the firm or at least the business intricacies themselves, can you talk a little bit about the main solutions a firm offers both merchants and consumers? Sure. Uh, thank you for, for having us. Um, for those of you who don't know what a firm does, uh, you can find us at the point of sale most often. We have lots of other things going on, but point of sale is where we started, and that's still the main act of the company. We provide an alternative to credit cards, and the company was really founded on this idea or observation about a decade ago when I read a study that stated that millennials no longer trust major banks, uh, in particular credit card issuing banks, and they look to fintechs and internet companies to be their financial partner. So thought occurred to me that you know, the real reason this, this is true is probably because they've seen the families uh, pay a little too much in late fees or things like deferred interest, et cetera. And um, I thought, what if we built a company that provides the same point of sale financing solutions, but fundamentally aligns itself to the success of the borrower as well as the merchant to help merchants close more transactions, potentially at higher ticket, while giving consumers total and full transparency to exactly what they're going to pay and whether there's any interest at all or not, they should know precisely what that number is in dollars, not um, esoteric measures. That's what we built out. Uh, at this point, we are on thousands of uh, brands online and offline um, and uh, have served multiple millions of consumers transacting. Um, we've maintained the extraordinarily high net promoter score primarily by just sticking to this idea of total transparency and uh, extreme clarity and customer. We've never charged a penny of late fees, one of my favorite statistics. We don't do deferred interest. We don't do really anything consumers can't expect. We go to great extent, great pains to make sure that consumers love us and not just sort of think, oh yeah, that was nice, but actually think of us as, as a great financial partner to them. And then to the merchants, we offer essentially just massively increased conversion. So a typical AOV increase ends up being on the order of 100%. So one of the standard merchant feedbacks to us is, you know, how do you guys manage to uh, give our consumers the opportunity to, 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 to do so much better? And uh, the, the short answer is we give our shared consumers certainty and, and comfort in being able to spend a little bit more. And so... I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. There's a very long list of things that we've launched since, but that's the core of value proposition that we started with. We just announced what I would consider to be a sort of fundamental, not, not, not a shift at all, it's an extension of our core strategy. Um, the 
origin of the company was really in this idea, well, you're going to have to pay for something over time if you buy a bicycle or a couch and also considered purchases. We've since transitioned or added what the world is now called BNPL, which is true 0%, no fees. And in, in that sense, we're, we're unique. The rest of the competitors said very much likes their late fee income. We, we should. Uh, but we do interest-free, shorter-term, lower AV transactions. And from my point of view, the way to ultimately sort of make, make this count from, you know, from achieving our mission side of the equation is to become a daily spending tool for our end customer. So we just announced we're going to launch a debit card, which will have a kind of a swipe left if you want it to be a transaction from your uh, regular checking account and swipe right if you want it to turn into a payable type transaction. So we're very excited to, to, to get there and sort of be a daily transactional provider for our end consumers. So Max, you hit on a, a broad range of things. Um, there are obviously benefits for both the consumer and the merchants. One of the things that we found in our quarterly um, proprietary survey of the top 500 e-commerce merchants in the U.S. is that you're picking up merchants much faster than we've seen, at least other digital wallets and, and some of the other buy now, pay later only merchants. And so you're you're leading in that respect. So maybe expand a little bit more on um, why merchants, you know, would want to use a firm just ex- versus accepting credit and debit cards or traditional digital wallets or even taking the incremental step of paying down interest so that, um, your customers and, and the shared customers, as you put it, can receive 0% interest, et cetera. Like, what's the benefit that they're seeing, you know, versus what's out in the market? Uh, so I think the, the thing that I already alluded to, just from a pure value to the merchant, it's always about conversion. It is about increased AOV. Merchants work very hard to merchandise, to produce a, a product or to, to source a product that they think will be compelling for the end customer. Nothing hurts more for them if somebody shows up to the checkout counter, virtual or otherwise, and says, I, you know what, I'll think about it. Maybe a little bit more than I want to put onto my uh, my checking account. And we're there to say, you know what, you can absolutely safely purchase this because we will underwrite every transaction separately. We'll tell you exactly what the schedule is to not go immediately to use our vouchers. And so that works really well, and the consumers tend to convert better, and the average ticket goes up. I think that, that that's first and foremost. The unique nature of a firm is probably at least two incremental areas. Uh, and it's a little bit of a meta answer in a sense that you probably heard us announce a major partnership with Shopify last year. We just announced that we resigned our large programmatic partnership with Walmart uh, just around the IPO time and so on. And, we have a long list of platform partners that I'm not going to rattle off now, but a huge piece of who we are fundamentally is a technology company. The company was founded by four computer scientists. We have, uh, you know, I'm sure we have shortcomings in all kinds of places, but the one thing that we have in spades is technical discipline. And that extends into both ability to build and scale with our partners, hence our ability to bring on these massive platforms and enterprise partners but also our ability to manage risk and build models that allow us to manage risk through given sort of the craziness of 2020 and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so the ability to bring unique, scalable, thoughtful solutions to 
merchant ecosystem that are sometimes very modern and very demanding, e.g. Shopify, all the way to complex, primarily offline, and in many ways unique, like Walmart, is a big deal. And in that sense, we, we're quite unique and you know, think ourselves very well ahead of the pack. And then something I should have started with, but I tend to get on that podium a little too often and you know, pound the Bible. Um, we mean it when we say that you know, this is a mission-first company. When we say no late fees, this is not a, you know, sometimes we'll, uh, we'll sneak one in because we need to make a quarter. It's extremely, extremely binary. And if you stick to that for 10 years, consumers start trusting it. And then at some point, merchants start realizing that actually it matters. There's a whole generation and the one after it that say, hey, I remember when my parents lost their house to a foreclosure or you know, all that stuff is somewhere in the back of people's mind. Nobody enters the transaction thinking I'll pay late fees, but everyone hates it when they do. And if it happens to you once, and you're like, you know, I wish there was a financial product that didn't have late fees. We're the only ones that say, yeah, like that, that's, that's who we are. And this mission first attitude, while it's fundamentally speaking to the consumer, actually really matters to merchants. One of the things that you know, I, I love uh, pointing out is when we started this thing, I would have to go explain to merchant partners and platform partners that it's really a good idea for them to expect their financial providers do not charge late fees. And say, really, uh, I haven't crossed my mind. Like, I'm never late on my credit. First of all, everyone is late on every one of their bills at some point or another. It's a matter of, of design in the system. Like, it, it's designed to harvest all those late fees. But two, consumers really notice when it happens. So fast forward 10 years, when we were talking to a Shopify and to a variety of actually recently of our platform partners, the RFPs explicitly stated the partner may not charge late fees, which is a huge watershed moment from, I'm sorry, I remember talking to Walmart about this even four, four years ago when we just met them first, and they were starting to sort of get a religion like there is a right way and the wrong way to do financial services, and this is the right way. So in, in that sense, we're very unique and have a unblemished history of being on the right side. So as you're talking to merchants and, and you're exploring with them kind of consumer relationship with merchants and with their financial institution, et cetera. I'm sure there are lots of things that come to mind as the, the, the ways that you can provide incremental services and value to the, to the merchant partners. And, and I know it always ties back to the consumer, but I want to just focus on the merchant here for one more question. What do you, how do you see your merchant relationship and what kinds of services would you imagine that encompassing in the very long run and, and, you know, when you look at online today versus going offline or omni-channel, like when you start to bridge that. So just talk a little bit about how you want that merchant relationship to eventually look. Absolutely. And I, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head or started to when you brought up. So, for example, a huge percentage of especially our large customers have both online and offline presence, and they don't think of them as separate anymore. The idea of buy online, return in store, et cetera, et cetera. It, these are new modalities, but people are charging ahead. And 2020 was a year where everyone suddenly said, you know what, this online thing is equal participant in our commerce strategy. There's no such thing as e-commerce anymore. Everything happens electronically. And in that sense, we have, we think it's a pretty fantastic set of offerings for omnichannel and we support all modalities of transacting quite well, but there's a ton more opportunity to do there. Um, I'm biting my tongue to some extent because as a newly minted public company CEO, I, I know not to say things that are on my roadmap and right here within reach, but haven't launched yet. Uh, but we have a lot of really cool new products somewhere between whiteboard and 
in the launch schedule where the merchant just gets more value. As we become an integral piece of their world, we can start bringing in new services that are adjacent to what we do today um, and yet are unique in the sense that we see a lot of what's going on in their world and their data because we're processing so much of the, uh, of the consumer flow. Um, as I struggle to separate what's public knowledge and not, Michael, if you want to <laughs> jump in and, and define things uh, tighter, please do. I'm, I've always loved to not give very fulsome answers. And so anytime, uh, anytime I start struggling, it's because I, I know too much. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I think your, your point on, on data and, and looking for opportunities is, is, is certainly well taken. On the consumer side, you highlighted um, some of the ways you're trying to build trust, particularly over the long run, um, and and you know why um, that type of relationship hopefully is is different than maybe as you said their parents' generation of, of relationships with financial institutions, et cetera. Um, you know, I guess one of the things that you're looking at, and you've and, and you've you've obviously done really well with key partners like Peloton and the like. But how do you go, and you, you, you mentioned in passing at the, the outset, rolling out like um, a, a, a debit card, you've also introduced a savings account, but how do you go and become, and what are the steps that you're looking to take to become part of that everyday transacting process for your consumers and for your customers? And in the way we talk about in the investment community, increasing engagement, frequency of transaction, et cetera, like what are the, the key steps we should be watching along that path? That's actually a great, uh, I will continue the trend of answering questions about merchants with talking about consumers and now answer questions about consumers with talking about merchants. So one of the really cool things that we've built over the years, and the history is as always unintended, uh, unintended greatness. Sometimes we do unintended stupidity, but unintended greatness is this one. Um, so we launched this app years ago that was basically just means for consumers to pay us back a little more comfortable. If you're not in a business of collecting late fees, you actually want consumers to have near infinite number of ways to pay you back. And so one of the things that we did is we said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll text you, we'll email you, we'll remind you. But hey, if you download our app, we'll give you push notifications, anything to make sure you pay on time. Because, you know, no one are going to charge these, but we really want you to be on time. And so within that app, we've gathered quite a large number of consumers that are just going through it initially, primarily managing their, uh, their, their transactions with us. It became at some point quite a scalable thing where we have a lot of real estate a lot of surfaces where consumers look at their shopping data and interact with it and so we sort of said well what if we just set up a little tiny pop-up shop in there and say hey we have some other merchants you might want to consider and sure enough you know fast forward three-ish years or so it's now a third of our volume so a third of our transactional volume basically comes off our own surfaces where we are essentially referring a net new customer to the merchant and some of it is merchants coming, or consumers coming back to the merchant from where they came. And a lot of it is well personalized opportunity for us to say, hey, here's another merchant for you to discover. And so frequency, retention, frequency engagements, or whatever you want to call it, strategy that we have is really deeply rooted first and foremost in our app. And as you see us roll out the debit card, you'll see the two play very nicely together. Obviously, the swipe left doesn't exist on a piece of plastic, but you know, where, where, where might you expect it? And so that is where we're investing a lot of our time, figuring out how do we create 
another after another after another opportunity for consumers to say, oh yeah, Affirm, I have a thing to do in that app. The savings product is exactly what you described. It's this engagement opportunity where we said, what happens if we take your money? And uh, it's a lot harder to get somebody to give you money for safekeeping than to lend them money and you know, hopefully pay you back. That was an experiment that played very well. And we noticed very quickly that those that have trusted us indeed are actually more likely to come hang out in the app and transact, et cetera, et cetera. And so you will see us do more and more of these. Here's another thing for the consumer that ultimately creates this flywheel where as the customers walk through our app or our web portal, we want them to go off and shop at our merchant partners. So maybe this would be a, a question for you, you, Max and Michael, um, since Michael seems to be the gatekeeper on what can and can't be said publicly. But, uh, uh, um, you know, on that savings account, like any, any update you can give us on response and traction, Max, you suggested that there's better engagement, any, anything that like you can talk about hopefully quantitatively or at least qualitatively to expand on, on what Max talked about. Yeah, I think the, the thing that we can say is that we're really happy with the level of engagement and not just in the <clears throat> putting money in the savings account side. We see the level of transacting activity to be very, very high such that, you know, if it were its own business, we'd actually be able to fund all of the savings costs out of just the level of loan transactions that are happening in the platform. Um, it's early, it's nascent. Um, from a financial standpoint, we don't make use of those deposits. They sit with our partner. So it's not like uh, how a traditional financial institution might think of it, but the level of engagement is is the highest. The people who have a firm savings accounts are the kind of most engaged, most uh, satisfied customers we have. And and that's, you know, well worth any of the uh, costs associated with maintaining those savings accounts. Got it, got it. Um, so just on the, the buy now, pay later market specifically, and, and this really speaks to like the vision that you have over the long run, particularly if you are successful in securing kind of these younger demographics, especially as they're just entering into their economic life cycles. How do you envision like buy now, pay later evolving? You know, how broad should investors be thinking about it firm? I, I think when we speak to investors, from our perspective, they have imaginations that stem everywhere from or, or go everywhere from very narrow to like all encompassing. And so I'd love to hear from you kind of where you think that that fits. And and look, there are other obviously, as you're talking about that, I'd love to also hear there are obviously other players in the market. And sitting here today, it's easy to imagine that everybody ends up looking very much the same if they all if everybody realizes their vision. But like I think that's what the investors are looking at and, and imagining. But for you and, and where you're driving and you see opportunity, where do you, how broad can it be versus where do you see limits? So, first of all, I think it's a it's a very large TAM, but I am biased, obviously. I'm not a player in the market, so discount that all you will. Um, the good comparable from my point of view, and this speaks to a little bit to how we are different, is compares to the size of the overall revolving debts that Americans carry. So let's say in the U.S., we now play in the U.S. and Canada. We have sorts of other designs and all sorts of other places, but for, for now, North America is, is our sweet spot. And uh, that is north of a trillion dollars worth of revolving debt. Um, 
I'm a little bit of a zealot when it comes to this, but I generally think revolving credit accounts are a bad thing for consumers. I think it's confusing. I think it's designed to keep you in debt and all, all sorts of other comparables to payday lending come to mind. And BNPL defined broadly, which is how we define it, is the antidote. If everybody would just switch to simple, easy to understand, equal number, some number of payments, equal size for some number of months and you're done, there would be no revolving. People would not be going, how do I get out of my $10,000 debts? You know, maybe I should declare bankruptcy, which is a lot of what sort of financial lack of health is all about in this country. And so we are going after that. And the mission is to help people you know, save themselves a little bit here. And so I, I think that that's a giant opportunity. And I don't, I can't speak to my competitor's vision, but we see this as a broadly applicable toolkit that works just as well for everyday spend, you know, the debit card, that sort of that level of lattes and, and, and coffee, uh, coffee and, and, and lunch, search transactions all the way out to engagement rings and Peloton bikes. And obviously we've, we've done very well, certainly in, in the latter part of it, which is the hardest one to underwrite. Um, in terms of competitively sort of a, how do I see this evolving? I think there's a MasterCard for every visa, so to say. I don't think the world naturally accretes to a single player. I think you will see multiple, you know, the, the, the payment industry jargon is bugs. I think you'll see a bunch of bugs or, or, or marks on, on checkouts. Um, and uh, I think that's good. I think each one of us will have to come up with a way to look different, to be different, to speak to their customer base. Our customer base very much values the ability to know precisely when they're done paying, to not pay late fees or anything that, I, that I've sort of been pounding the table about. And uh, you know, we, we think it's going to go that way for us quite well. Um, I don't doubt that other players have their own vision of what, what that means for them. That said, I think probably the most interesting development in the long term is going to be this attachment to a firm's incremental product and properties. The, the thing that we talked about with the card, with the savings account, with the app, that is where that relationship is, is going to play out in the most useful ways. And so that, that the, the long-term measure of all these brands will be, are you able to engage your customers in frequency? It's an excellent measure for that. Got it. In our last few minutes here, there are a couple of key topics I want to touch on. First is, is, Shopify and, and that partnership, and and if you can just talk a little bit about how you expect ShopPay installments, what that offering will look like, um, you know, will consumers be able to pay the loan via a firm app, or is there integration at checkout? Uh, are there shared economics? Just walk us through a little bit of, of what to expect from that, and, and and perhaps as part of that, you know, what we should be expecting in terms of a ramp, because once again. Investors have a wide range of, of expectations of what that ramp timing and pace could look like. I'll, I'll, I'll split duties here. I'll speak to the product side of it. Michael can speak to the financials. Um, um, plus, I feel like you, you've given him a, a free pass in terms of questioning him. So uh, <laughs> the more he gets to be an hot seat, the better. Uh, so the um, we're, we're still in what I would consider sort of a in the open beta, I think last we spoke publicly, so I said it's under 100 merchants live and transacting. It's now over 100 merchants live and transacting. Um, but companies take a lot of pride in being pretty careful about not sending half-baked stuff out into the market. And so we've been very, very explicit about like, hey, don't expect this thing to be 
huge until it is. And I, I, I don't want to make any forward-looking statements or, or even similar to them, but there's a lot of merchants at Shopify. We are an exclusive provider within ShopPay. ShopPay, I think, just announced its gargantuan user base. So you know, all, all signs point to that this should be quite, uh, quite a successful partnership. Um, the exact GA date is most certainly something that I should not be speculating on in, on, on the record. Um, the just for what it's worth, the integration is really beautiful. It's super smooth. It's it's branded a firm, but it is completely embedded inside ShopPay. So if you sort of go through ShopPay installments, which is how you sort of introduce the product, you'll see that it's built in partnership with a firm. As soon as you tap into that choice as a, as a payment provider, and then it's entirely embedded within all the different manifestations that Shopify has, sort of all their templates and all that good stuff. Uh, and then the Integration specific are actually, as, as one might expect from two companies led by engineers, are actually evolving very rapidly. I was going to say something that I realized, like, wait a second, like we, we have this other thing in beta now. So uh, I'll, I'll let you experience it. If you uh, if you look at Shopify for uh, for SPI Shopify installments, you'll actually you can buy something and see what it looks like. And depending on which leg of the AB test you're on, you'll you'll get a different uh, different integration experience uh i'm sure that yeah i guess that's the reason, uh, uh, reason to try multiple times to see if you can get the and get the as, as often as you can and please pan time down the late please yeah and, and we're just not we're not ready to give any sort of specific dates you know the thing that we're consistently saying is through all the work we've done with shopify which has been incredible partners we're confident in the scale and impact of the relationship we're just not quite ready to get specifics as to when that'll that'll flip but with with somebody of their scale, obviously, when we do get to something that looks like general availability, we expect it to be very big, very fast. Got it. And so, and, and you know, and, and last topic then, and maybe we'll start with you, Michael, interest rates. There's been lots of conversation about where interest rates are, are going. Uh, obviously, it's been reflected in part in, in a firm stock itself. We know that as you were, as we were entering the the lockdowns around the pandemic, a firm itself kind of tightened the credit box. So, so what is your sense of a firm sensitivity to interest rates and how does it affect your offerings, whether it be 0% or fees you generate? Like, how are you thinking about the, the changing rate environment? First and, and most importantly, we we're risk managers at heart and that applies to how we think about credit, but also how we think about interest rates. And so, you know, we, we tend to manage interest rate risk pretty carefully inside the business from a short-term standpoint. Our securizations, our fixed um, rate securizations and forward flow relationships tend to have either some sort of a hedging applied to it or, you know, a negotiated um, a process where we can manage any of the shocks that may happen. And so we're less concerned about short-term volatility rates. Uh, longer term, look, we, we liked where our business was at pre-COVID. Uh, think about that kind of rate environment. Um, business was very good, very healthy. Margins were quite strong and, and, and feel pretty good about what that would look like if we envisioned a world that had substantially higher rates. Um, you're talking, you know, six, seven percent benchmark rates. There would have, start to be an impact, but it's important to note that we've got a lot of levers to manage that in our business. Firstly, with, with the consumers, um, you know, the, this interest rate sensitivity of a consumer uh, on the margin is nowhere near as high as you'd think, given that we express the rate in dollar terms and cap it. On the merchant side, the value of the financing offers we bring, we believe, are are significantly higher in a higher rate environment. You know, today, 39 months, 0% offer is compelling for the, for the consumers who take it up. 
uh, if rates were six points higher, it'd be you know substantially higher, and we think the impact of the merchant's business would go up, and we think that where you create value, you get paid. So with with the the amount that that interest rates have moved, you know, off the bottom or, or the volatility we've seen in the last month or month and a half, how much would you expect then there to be impact either to merchants' willingness to to buy down interest rates and 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 that kind of thing, or your ability to lend and go after customers, et cetera? Uh, we are we're so far away from coming with it near any of the lines um, where that starts to come into play. I, I would characterize the current rate environment while volatile and, and kind of the first derivative is high. Uh, zoom out. Um, rates are on, on an absolute basis quite low, and that's the bigger impact to us. As I said, we're able to manage any of the short-term fluctuations quite well in the business. Um, the question for us is long-term, where do we see rates? And, you know, certainly not qualified to opine on <laughs> macroeconomics, but from our standpoint, the business is really healthy at rates in an environment that you saw pre-COVID, and clearly we're at levels meaningfully below that right now. Great. And, then, and for, for what it's worth, I just want to sort of highlight yeah, yeah. Michael already touched on. Um, the general correlation between rates going up and consumer feeling and merchants feeling healthy is, is, is positive. In that sense, we see demand for our product rising. So this is a little bit of a thing that I, I got to learn during my PayPal years, 20 plus years ago now, payments and in particular consumer lending slash payment businesses are very acyclic. When the economy is, has slowed down and things are tight, merchants are dying for transactions and these kind of products are exceptionally valuable to just get some top line in. As the rates go up, you actually end up saying, well, what can I invent to compel you to transact? And one of the key things that makes us so different and so successful, frankly, is that we built an entire technology stack underneath what has always been a very dumb pricing model where consumer negotiates a rate with a credit card, merchant negotiates rates with their acquirer, and then never the two shall meet. That is the silliest thing anyone's ever invented. In fact, it should be something that allows itself to be priced in real time dynamically. And we have done that quite successfully. And I think that's actually sets us up very nicely for the from my point of view, increase in the pace of the economic growth in, in the U.S. and, and you know, perhaps the attended rate is rising. Got it, got it. Just in, in the last minute, maybe Max or Michael, just outline for us kind of what we should be expecting in terms of path of profitability, margin progression, and, and ultimately uh, long-term profitability. I'll start, and you can uh, you can put some numbers on it, Michael, if you feel like it. Uh, so, I mean, you sort of heard me wax lyrical about the size of the team. It's it's gargantuan. Um, we think of ourselves as engineers in positive unit economics out, kind of a black box model. For the moment, my primary disagreement with Michael is just how quickly we can get more engineers. But the the number of things I want to build, and we sort of have in a pipeline in various forms of readiness significantly exceeds what we can hire and train. But fortunately, after the IPO, I feel significantly less constrained in terms of what we can invest. And so that that should sort of shape the, the understanding. I'm not trying to chase, we're not trying to chase operating, uh, positive operating cash flow or any, any such metric today. We're chasing very hard market expansion or our participation in market expansion. Most importantly, by building incremental 
harmonically cooperating products. And so that, that's what can continue costing us in engineering talent, which I think is a the right kind of investment. I think, you know, I, I read both the implicit performance of the stock so far and direct conversations with investors as a strong endorsement of that strategy. I think people are compelled to, to let us build something really special here. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, if you want to pour okay. some cold water on that, please. No, no, no. All that is, is very true. We are investment forward. Um, we think that the opportunity here is so enormous that we're going to go chase it. You know, that being said, the one thing that we're going to be mindful of, as I said, we are risk managers at heart. And so we, we tend to look at our unit economics carefully. And, you know, we, we think of it as if we can deliver good unit economics, we should be very, very heavily investing uh, if we can deliver the growth. And that's the situation we find ourselves in now. And, and longer term, we think those strong unit economics, um, you know, will be absorbed with, a, with whatever fixed cost base we have to generate really healthy uh, long-term returns. That's great. Max, Michael, thank you so much for joining us here at the Morgan Stanley TMT conference. Really looking forward to everything that you have in the pipeline. Obviously, you put together a great team, and let's see what you can add in the future. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.